0: let's all go to the lobby
1: let's all go to the lobby let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat hello and welcome to movies versus capitalism and anti-capitalist movie podcast i am frank capello
2: and i'm rifka rivera and frank this is our 15th episode
1: i can't believe it already
2: i know it's wild i know 15 is i'm, I'm sure people talk about it like whoa. like I, one time we'll be at like 100 some point and it'll be crazy but i just in reflecting on on this in this process because this has been such a new medium for me and it's been so much fun 15 feels like a lot and the journey i was just thinking about how when i talk about the experience so far with friends i'm always saying how I'm so grateful for for the speed at which we turn these around because we're doing them weekly which is a lot of work and a lot of movie watching.
1: Oh yeah. It's more work than you might think.
2: <laughs> than I perhaps thought. But I'm enjoying it and we're getting we feel like we're finding our stride and it's we're getting it but what's been what's been crucial for me about it is that because we're editing and putting out the podcast there's not time to sit On it, And there's not time to overthink, you know, we're watching the movie, we're putting our thoughts together. And for me, that's been pretty liberating, because I struggle with a lot of perfectionism. And I know that a lot of people struggle with perfectionism. So I just thought it would be be cool to just touch base and and have a little convo in our in our first block here about particularly the culture of perfectionism under capitalism and how you know, that the fact that I'm struggling with it isn't exact. It's not like a me issue. It's like a us. It's
1: like a we issue. Um, so Well, so let me ask you, as we are putting these things out, is there like a part of you that like starts getting itchy? That's like, oh, that that thing could have been better. I could have done that better. Or like we should have trimmed this up. Like the fact that we're, you know, by by nature of having a weekly release schedule, you just kind of have to put something out every week. Does that kind of uh, trigger your perfectionism?
2: You know, no, it's it's um, been freeing because I think it's om- it would be impossible to let my you know in or if my perfectionism took over, there would be no show. So I, I'm mm-hmm. loving exploring that, and certainly there there's you know we listen to these over and I would think oh wow I literally said that word wrong or <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I um you know but but I love it because I can laugh at myself and I think that's like so frankly anti-capitalist you know and I'm and sure it's been really healing to explore that capacity because what are you gonna do it's out you know I think I said like at the end of a movie the ending credits I call them reels and like mm-hmm. <laughs> like what up? like small things like that to bigger things where I'm like I can't believe we talked about that movie and I didn't mention this thing or it wasn't oh, yeah. like perfectly phrased or of course anyone who's in these mediums I, I use this I say like, or I say this, or I say that a lot. And what's important to know contextually is that the function of perfectionism and capitalism is crucial to making the whole thing turn, right? So there's this idea of a meritocracy that if we just strive hard enough, we'll get the rewards and status. And if we don't strive hard enough, then, you know, we won't get those things. This is like up to us. And there's this competition, which means like someone's going to, do it better based on this metric Mm -hmm. that that has been set for us and so the goal is doing the best in order to literally survive and not and so the definition of success becomes so narrow and we've talked about this many times of like having to in part of the recovery from wrecking like waking up to the matrix of capitalism is being able to widen your definition of success but um because I think when you talk about perfection, it, can, it lands in so many different areas, right? It's like, first of all, if perfectionism is this I some ideal, who is setting that ideal? And in America, under the like, white patriarchal colonial framework, like mm-hmm. those things become very limiting and one dimensional and deeply harmful for anyone who's pursuing them. Gotcha. And so, yeah, so I think on that level of that kind of perfect, but it's really like, It was just interesting to see how it showed up in the development of this show. Just, oh, in the past, I would say, like, the consequences of that kind of perfectionism for a creative would be, if I can't say it perfectly or get my ideas out in a way that I think is acceptable or the best version of that, then I won't speak at all. Yeah. And I think that that sort of, that literal censorship is so dangerous. And I think one of the... One of the things that can combat that idea of perfectionism that I, that I'm trying to a, adopt and live by and remind myself of when these things come in is speaking and draft, that we always have permission to say, "Oh, I learned something new." and so I'm going to re, you know, I'm going to rewrite the way, the way I think about things and the way that I'm going to say those things because everything is evolving, and I think being able to embrace that evolution and recognize there's never going to be a perfect version of the thing so don't wait to speak. Mm. has been helpful for me because that's definitely been my journey and and one of the fears about being on a, you know, doing a podcast, how do you what what happens if you realize you said something wrong and then it's out there? So, yeah, that's kind of where this is all this idea has always has been sitting with me but I've just like it's been really healing to just be in it and literally practicing it.
1: Thank you for sharing all of that. Um that's so interesting that perfectionism. I mean, it conjures a lot of things, but what what it sounds like to me, what your experience is, is sort of the perfectionism of living within this system that has these, like you said, you know, white patriarchal colonial standards and framework that because of that, because of its control over so much of our society, it's it feels like you have to adhere to those standards and are striving for perfectionism within that. But like when you said when you brought up perfectionism to me the first thing that I thought about was competition which is also a very mm. it's also a very capitalist concept the perfectionism of needing to do the thing better than the person that you will be competing with the perfectionism of I have to be the absolute best the absolute most perfect because if I am not then I will not get XYZ thing that I want and because mm. we live in a meritocracy which that's bullshit. We're meritocracy is fictional. We're being we're being facetious here. But because I live in a meritocracy, perfectionism will get me there. And mm-hmm. I used to live in that mindset, man, for a, such a long time, especially when I lived in LA and I was, you know, still when I was still trying to break into the, the writing industry and the comedy industry out there, just going over scripts. Over and over and over again, just with a fine tooth comb and just being like, oh, if I change that to a witch or if I change this line to like, maybe that will be the thing that sets me apart Mm -hmm. that uh, wins this script competition or, you know, gets in front of this, uh, this agent or manager. And I think attention to detail is important and specificity is important. Those are those are artistic tendencies. But. The perfectionism is yeah it's 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 an impossible standard because who's because it's all subjective like who's judging what is perfect? A friend said to me at one point, he's like, "When is your art complete?" And I was like, "I don't know when is it complete." The answer is. Five minutes before you have to turn it in. <laughs> and I think he actually now that I'm th- now that I'm saying it back out, out loud again, I'm realizing that he was saying it in a way that was like you should always be working on the thing up until the point where you have to hand it off to somebody, um, which I think actually leans into that perfectionism. but it is but it does kind of mm-hmm. conjure the idea that like, yeah, because art is subjective because creativity is subjective, like you could just keep tinkering with it forever. You could just keep, you know, going over it and trying to make it better and more perfect, more perfect. But, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. there's beauty and messiness and sometimes there's, you know, you have to be able yeah. to let go in order to to grow.
2: Well, I think that what's interesting about about it is how how deep it can just all of these things. It's not, you know, it's not just some um, political or economic system, right? It's like it is a culture that seeps into your very being and how mm. you live, and so the the reason we're so passionate about being looking through a critical lens about this stuff is because it can truly liberate and change like your total existence, right? Like it, I know it does that for me with writing or even, you know, whatever, whatever works. But if you can be like, huh, wait, I heard this thing. Like, I wonder where that came from. Often I'll like these ideas that I used to consider just, you know, the way the way that it is, because that's what I heard about being a creative. And then once you can be critical of them and you're like, oh, Actually, does that align with me being the most free and the most excited about creating? You know, for me, like deadlines can be helpful and sometimes they can be really harmful. And like who who decided on that structure and why? And like often those kind of things do come back to some kind of production value. Well, because you need it done by this time Mm. so that you can make, you know, whatever those things are. and and, And they can be tools, but you can liberate yourself from the things that don't work. You know, yes, I want to be able to think about what I say before I say it, but also like if that's going to s- choke you up and not let you speak, go out and just start talking and be wrong, like be willing to be wrong, I think is sort of the exploration I'm at without. And if you cause harm, be accountable for it and learn from it and be willing to evolve.
1: Yes, that is. Which yes, is that's, yeah. the, very and important that's part
2: of it, though, is like you have to be willing to do that piece out loud, too i think in order to continue moving forward exploring whatever the whatever the that idea of success is which is you know for me i think at this point whatever's going to liberate everyone in a very broad sense
1: so yeah so i think this is really important i'm glad that you um, brought it up for us to chat about and
2: grateful to just the community that we've slowly started building through Um, doing this show and people who've written in responses i think it's it's been a conversation which is what we you know obviously not on the air with us but to be in conversation and i think to like even not necessarily agree with something someone says but be able to be be able to take that in and keep moving forward is part of this whole deal also
1: yeah that's fucking life baby
2: life baby
1: all right we should get to our uh our interview today oof this is a fun Mm -hmm. one you've got mail uh before we do just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us
2: We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen.
1: And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon.
2: For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show... You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com.
1: You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with our conversation about You've Got Mail with Robin Johnson.
2: We are so happy to be joined by Robin Johnson. She, her, she's an artist, activist, and magic maker, an actor turned director. Her filmmaking debut, Beach Day, currently making the rounds in the festival circuit, challenges female archetypes in cinema, and explores grief and rage through a supernatural lens. When she isn't making art, Robin works at the communications department at the ACLU, drinks too much coffee, I can relate, and tries to pet every dog she passes on the streets of New York City. Welcome, Robin. It's so great to have you on Movies vs. Capitalism.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to chat today.
2: So we were connected to you through our mutual friend and also guest on the podcast, Ryan Christian. Friend of the pod. friend, Friend of the pod. Yeah. I'm I love that phrase. Friend of the pod. It's the
1: official terminology. We have to use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: (laughs) Um, And yeah, it's just so nice to connect with an artist who's also shares the politics that we have. And I'm just I'm curious. You say you work at the ACLU as well. You have this film that's just coming out. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and the work that you do.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So Ryan and I have known each other for years. We met Uh, We met working on a heartbreaking play about um, Emmett Till, in which I played Carolyn Bryant and he played Emmett Till. So doing something like that will really bond you with somebody. (laughs) Um, So we became quite close, um, you know, pretty fast. And um, something he and I share, which I know he mentioned uh, when he was on the pod, was that as an artist, um, we both are drawn to projects that align with our our values, our anti-capitalist values, anti-racist values, um, all of those values. I actually formally gave up acting in 2020. Um, the pandemic hit and I didn't miss it. I'd been doing a lot of commercial work and uh doing a lot of commercial work as an actor is frustrating. As I'm sure you know, you know the you're like oh, my craft, but doing a lot of commercial work as an anti-capitalist is mm. like just pull your hair out. How many times can I, you know, go in and try to convince people to buy a vacuum cleaner? They don't need uh, all of that stuff. Um, so, so I, I I broke up with my agent in 2020, and I started writing my own stuff. Just made this film. Um, we finished it in February of this year. We started it in 2021. It's currently in the festival circuit. It is called Beach Day. It will be available to view eventually. We'll get to all of the how you can contact me later. Um, But when I gave up acting uh, professionally, I knew I wanted to find a way to survive in capitalism that was more in line with my values and aggressively applied to every organization I admired. And I, I ended up at the ACLU. It's me. That's me in a little nutshell. Yeah,
1: (laughs) that's such a lovely journey. And I the the one thing I want to say is because I also gave up professional acting several years ago and I, I like to draw the distinction of, I mean, for anyone out there, for any artist, for whatever, you know, choosing not to pursue an art on the professional on a professional scale does not mean that you are not still that type of artist so you know like while i was like oh i don't want to be a professional actor and like do the whole yeah rat race the commercial auditions the all that i was like i do still love acting and performing so like being able to draw that distinction i think is really important especially for people who are grappling with the pressures that you know the market system puts on our artwork so yeah
2: I'm so happy you brought this up like right at the top I think it's so important to talk about and what I heard in it is like that you're you're more an artist in some ways than ever like you're connecting with that but you're you left the the market if you will <laughs> you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like kind of what you're saying Frank is just choosing not to be in the marketplace which can be a really painful place to be I'm still in said marketplace and it's um a considerable struggle and can be okay it can be great at times when you find projects that align but more and more you know i had an audition the other week that i just like looked at was a commercial audition and you're just like the m- the money it doesn't add up i'm going to lose money to show up for this job because our union has just and between streaming and we've talked about this before it's just like so low I will have to give up. I will have to like leave work, take off work, <laughs> and when you're a freelancer, there's no <laughs> vacation days. So it's mm-hmm. just it's an insane marketplace. And thank you for starting there. And speaking of the marketplace, you chose a incredible film for us to watch today.
1: Yeah, a movie that we have been <laughs> waiting to get to. Um, you chose "You've Got Mail." Wow, uh, yeah. <laughs> directed by Nora Ephron, written by Nora and her sister Delia Ephron, starring Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Greg Kinnear, Parker Posey, and Dave Chappelle. The budget was $65 million and it made $250 million worldwide. Big ol' hit. Um, mm-hmm. This is the third movie with Hanks and Ryan together after Joel vs. the Volcano and Sleepless in Seattle, which was also directed by Ephron. Synopsis of this movie, which is based on a uh, a 1937 play, this is the story of Kathleen Kelly, played by Meg Ryan, and Joe Fox, played by Tom Hanks, uh, who met in a chat room for people over 30 and start <laughs> anonymously writing romantic emails to each other, even though they're both in relationships. Little do they know in real life, they are actually enemies because Joe Fox is a high ranking executive at Fox Books, a corporate chain bookstore, which has just opened a new location on the Upper West Side down the street from the shop around the corner. A beloved boutique children's bookstore, which Kelly not only owns and runs, but inherited from her dead mother. Uh, And from there, the drama ensues and goddamn a ton of drama in this film.
2: So some historical context for you've got mail. It was released on December 18th in 1988, Bill Clinton is president and in January he denies having sexual relations with his former White House intern Monica Lewinsky. Smoking cigarettes is banned in all California bars and restaurants, but but still you can definitely still smoke other places. At this time, the FDA approves Viagra, the first ever erectile dysfunction pill, and other movies that came out this year were Armageddon, The Big Lebowski, There's Something About Mary, The Truman Show, and A Bug's Life. It's a good year. It's a good year. I know. I was just thinking all those movies were so formative. America Online launched in 1989, but by 1995, it had 3 million active users, and Google... Inc. is founded this year. The United States Department of Justice files an antitrust case against Microsoft. So, yes, this is the landscape in which this film releases. It's
1: the dot-com bubble. A lot of internet stuff happening.
2: A lot Early
0: of internet This The sort of like more charming version I think of the internet. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah well, we'll we'll get into to that this this iteration of the internet in this movie but uh Robin first thing we like to start with is asking our guest why did you choose this movie?
0: I chose this movie because simply put I hate this movie and I know so <laughs> many people <laughs> who love this movie and I can't Talk about how much I hate it with all of these people. Um, So I thought I could talk about it with you. Uh, No, I think (laughs) um, growing up, this was one of my mom's favorite movies. I know a lot of people who love this movie. And I mean, if you strip away any sort of critical lens, you can kind of see why it is very aesthetically charming. And it has America's sweethearts as the protagonists. And there are daisies coming out of Meg ryan's eyeballs and it's just (laughs) there's a golden retriever and it's it's very sweet but it's actually if you actually just listen to the dialogue a little bit it is a capitalist horror story and i actually think that there this screenplay could very well have translated into a film with like a different tone and a different director and different actors that would have been a very successful satire of like you know of capitalism and big business um it's not it's it's done in earnest but uh i i just wanted to get into how horrifying this film is with with y'all today this beloved rom-com
2: yeah i love everything you just said because i felt very similarly although i have a question did you did you always feel that way or were you did you come to that opinion or were you always like were you like a kid with your mom loving this like mom
0: no I was very I was very young when I watched this with my mom so I had no concept of what capitalism was at all um and I was very taken by you know the chunky sweaters and the floppy (laughs) haircuts and like the every everything is so warmly lit you know and you just you just feel like yeah you just want to cozy up with hot cocoa it's a great
1: New York movie it's like it makes New York seem so romantic New York in
2: the fall it's Mm -hmm. Get out your school supplies. Just go buy a bouquet. Smell some Um, scotch
0: tape. Yeah. Yes. Smell some scotch (laughs) tape. And then the the springtime and what is where are they? Riverside Park. And there's like the flowers blooming. It's very romantic. Um, But then I watched it again as a teenager and realized what it is. And in watching it again for um, for this podcast, uh, even more horrifying things popped out to me. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I agree. Every time I watch it, it's so odd. It becomes like more my simultaneously like more of a favorite movie and like more horrifying. It's like it's one of those. It's so strange. And I agree. This movie is a horror movie. To me, it's a horror movie about capitalism. It's also like about the first catfish It's this crazy, crazy man, Joe Fox, who just basically puts a woman who he stalks out of business and then gaslights the shit out of her. And then it's interesting. I think my big takeaway was just how it's particular. It's a love letter to this very particular piece of capitalism, which is this moment in time during the Clinton administration when the neoliberal agenda is really being set where where it's like essentially people are so exhausted Nobody wants to have to make a choice or who wants to be political like big business is going to be big business. So you give in, fall in love, let the man be like, you know, let let the big (laughs) corporate man be the big corporate man. And you know what? If you just shut up and stop having opinions, something good might come from it. And like that is the arc of this story. She literally says at one point, I forgot to vote and I got a
0: manicure. And I think that that sums up exactly what you're saying. You know, you need to disassociate a little bit and just fall in love and
1: fall in love with your capitalist oppressor. You know, fall in love with the big box store that. Is gonna put you out of business, but you know what? At the end of the day, you're gonna find out that the guy that runs that big box store, he's actually not that bad. Although he is he uh is, Joe, Fox is a, Joe Fox is Joe Fox is it? We'll we'll get to Joe Fox as a character in a minute because there's so much to be said. But yeah, for anyone who hasn't rewatched this movie, basically like Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, they're falling in love, and his he's like he runs Barnes and Noble essentially. His family mm-hmm. runs Barnes and Noble, or she books runs a million
0: really. I I actually read that they wanted to shoot in Barnes and Noble, and Barnes and Noble said. No, <laughs> there is a lot of product placement. There is actual AOL, there's wow. actual Starbucks, and they wanted to use Barnes and Noble. That's right. And Barnes and Noble said, no, please continue. Just wanted to throw that in there.
1: No, I think that's important because it's the, the movie is like slightly critical of the big box store, but then ultimately lands at a place of like, but, but it's kind of nice in here, though.
2: You can do what you're going to do here. Like, we make yeah. it work, which she does. She yeah. makes it work.
1: And the whole conceit is that, you know, his store, Fox Books, is putting her store that she inherited from her mother, is going to put her out of business. Meanwhile, they're falling in love both online and in real life. And it really softens any, because going in, I was like, maybe this is going to be a critique of capitalism and the way that like these hyper competitive markets. That's how and I especially remember it. That's how I, 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 I kind of remember it that way, too. I was like, I was like, oh, this is going to tell us that the Barnes and Noble is bad. But as the movie and there's some critical aspects of it. But I do want to play this one clip uh, from the beginning when <laughs> Joe Fox and, is explaining to Dave Chappelle what they're going to be doing here at this new Fox Books location. Oh, no, this is up the west side, man. We might as well tell them we're opening a, a crack house. They're going to hate us soon as they hear, they're gonna be lining up to, to pick, pick it, at the, the big, big bad chain store that's out to it. everything they hold dear. Yeah. Do you know what? We are gonna seduce them. We're gonna seduce them with our square footage and our discounts and our deep armchairs and our cappuccino. Yeah, that's right. They're gonna hate us at the beginning, but,
0: but we'll get we'll them maybe. in the air. <laughs> and you know why? Why? Because we're gonna
1: sell them cheap books and legal addictive stimulants. Mm. In the meantime, we'll just put up a big sign coming soon a fox book superstore the end of civilization as you know it so it's like he's there he's aware of how fucking terrible they are but then they like put this little jaunty little jazzy piano underneath and you're like oh this is actually kind of and it's tom hanks this is kind of nice
0: and what's so insidious about that quote in particular is that that's what happens in their relationship as well right he's talking about that's how the Upper West Siders are going to react to Fox books. But in the end, like they're going to hate us. But in the end, they're going to love us. But that's what ends up happening with Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. She hates him. But in the end, she loves him. And that Mm -hmm. quote can be applied to both of those situations, which is why I think this could have been an effective satire, but it's it's not. And you thought it was, or you thought it was a critique. And uh, when you rewatched, you
2: realized it's absolutely not. (laughs) And I've also thought about like, this movie could have, it's not like, you know, some movies you're like, oh, it had to be that way to like, like, there's no reason this movie had to end or go this way. It could have been just as charming as romantic. And it could have been the movie that I remembered it being in my head. (laughs) Which was very charming and romantic. And like the little bookstore wins and Joe Fox is just charming and not like you can be a disgruntled and maybe have shit to work through that still gives some tension and conflict. But this particular tension and conflict was like not necessary to this charming film. Yeah, it's not an equal playing field,
0: right? Usually in these like enemies to lovers tropes, they're on a sort of equal playing field, but when someone is the oppressor in a larger societal <laughs> sense, it doesn't really work. Frank, I know you wanted to get into Joe Fox as a character. Uh,
1: so oh yeah, there. no, I, but just, just jump on it. Yeah, well. Oh my god, That's, <laughs> I this this fucking guy, Joe Fox. Um, the the, the last point I want to make to what you were just saying is. Yeah, they're not on an evil playing field. And this movie, by the end of the movie, spoiler alert, her store, Meg Ryan's store goes out of business. Kathleen's store is out of business. Um, So she has lost her livelihood. She lost what her mother left to her. And at the end, she does, in fact, choose Tom Hanks. She has fallen in love with him. So, it is a full on endorsement of everything that has transpired so far mm-hmm. in the movie. So, it's like it doesn't, it completely softens any like light critique that there might have been leading up.
2: Which is why we don't remember that because it's so effective. And I think this is something we see time and time again with these movies where, like, I think about so many of them where you ask someone from the era about that film and what they tell you has nothing to do with what the movie's actually about. Like, I'm thinking about Saturday Night Fever, which I hope we do on this podcast soon. But like that movie based on like collective memory is like a fun disco dancing movie. And then you watch it and you're like, that is not what this movie is at all. <laughs> I don't even enjoy the dancing. It's crazy. So that was I would put you've got mail in that category. I'd put like Manhattan in that category like everyone tells you no it's a very funny movie about New York and you're like this is a movie about pedophilia is what this movie is about and that's Mm. that's plot line a so like I don't know I just think there's something that's so effective about these films that is I don't know about, I I don't even know what I think about the word intentional at this point, like if that even, you know, matters really, but it's just fascinating that this just, we keep identifying it.
1: Well, it's also such an amazing snapshot of 1998, because this is the time when people were worried about the big box stores putting the little independent mom and pop shops out of business. And now it's 2023 and Amazon has totally (laughs) eaten Barnes and Noble's lunch, you know, like this movie has- this, this movie has no economic relevance anymore today because the way that, you know, tech and online marketplaces have completely upended the way that retail and distribution has worked. So it's, it's such a unique snapshot of this specific time. Except
2: that you could do, like, the sequel, like you're saying, and the sequel would be now Joe Fox is, like, what, I guess, getting stalked and then falls in love with Jeff Bezos and, like... Bezos. <laughs> But the storytelling would be this right. Like, we we keep being told the same thing of like, Amazon's too big. To, they're too big. Just like love it, love it, love it. It's so romantic. It's and it is. It's like, but it's such a dangerous narrative and so powerful.
1: Yeah, I would love to see uh, Jeff Bezos catfish Joe Fox and <laughs> just uh, absolutely destroy his life. He deserves it. Yeah, let's get into. To Joe Fox, Robin. Mm. Joe, Fo- Joe Fox, pro or anti? The man of your dreams or a full-blown psychopath? What do you what do you think?
0: Man of my dreams, obviously. Man of my <laughs> nightmares. Um this movie is really banking on Tom Hanks in 1998 in order to make this at all work, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, the most beloved, lovable guy. Um anyone else playing this role? I do not think that the rom com would have succeeded at all. The scene, there's a scene where he's um, in an office with his dad and his grandpa. And it's just like three generations of like generational oh. wealth, white guys. <laughs> they yeah. literally laugh maniacally when he shares that another small business is going under and they can, they do like a pew, pew, pew. Ha, 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 ha. Like it is so, it is so over the top. <laughs> it's um, so gross. It's so gross. And he continually lies to Meg Ryan. He's he's not a, he's not he's also cheating on Parker Posey the whole time. They're both cheating on their partners, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I forgot that too, and until this rewatch, and I was like, oh, they're cheaters as well. Um, <laughs> but we really are the only reason I think the audience is is washed over with that feeling is because it's Tom Hanks, and we get to see him playing at a fall harvest carnival with children and being adorable and carrying around a goldfish and having a golden retriever and but I mean he he is just awful till the end um aside from the little thing of closing down her business, which he says at the end by the way, that is a line. he's like, you know, so for folks who don't remember, he has the upper hand at a certain point and he knows that the person he's been anonymously communicating with is, kathleen kelly meg ryan's character but meg ryan doesn't know that she's been communicating with tom hanks she still thinks that he's like new york 5179 or whatever his name is his screen name is and she thinks that new york 519 or whatever stood her up on a date and after breaking into her home she's sick and he's like let me in i want to i want to apologize to you and she's like please don't come into my home i'm sick he comes in when someone else is leaving And this is like the big romantic time, right? (laughs) This is like the last 15 minutes of the movie. Like the resolution's coming. She's like, please don't come in. I'm sick. Also, I hate you. He breaks into her building, forces his way into her apartment unit. He sits on her bed while she's cozying up and blowing her nose. And she's like high on Dayquil and keeps pushing himself closer and closer to her. Like it does not stop. There is no line that this man will not cross. He's just, he's, he's an evil villain. And in the horror movie version... He is
2: he is grotesque um, and some sort of demonic creature. I'm so with you. I feel like as I was taking notes for this, Robin, I, I, I texted Frank. I'm like, it's just turned into a list of red flags. Yeah. Like I was like, red flag one. I mean, it starts with he's just lies to her from the top in the store when he meets her. He's like, oh, I'm not I'm not Joe Fox. And then. I mean, referencing the godfathers, teaching red flag, red flag, red flag, scooping the caviar, red flag. The way he speaks to, there's this scene at Zabar's with, we have a fun cameo from Sarah Ramirez. And this scene's so important too, because it it's teaching us as the audience, I think, how we're supposed to view him. Because she's at, at like the top of the, you know, doesn't have cash at Zabar's, great New York moment. And he comes in and they're all like, get off the line, lady, get off the line. And he comes in and he's so rude and condescending to Rose, who's behind the who's at the cash register played by Sarah Ramirez. He's like, happy Thanksgiving. Say happy Thanksgiving back. And like basically infantilizes
1: her infantil.
2: It's such disgusting behavior. But then she's like charmed by him at the end. Right. Which is like. (laughs) psychotic and then he leaves and then she's rude to kathleen so like that scene is telling us like like no you're supposed to it's like not only is she being gaslit by him i feel like there is gaslighting of us as an audience where we're watching something like this is not okay this is very not okay behavior but everybody's charmed by it so perhaps he is our our Mm -hmm. leading man and i think You know, as you were talking, too, I was thinking, wow, it really is, again, this period of time under Clinton, where I think the Democratic Party is sort of like creating this type of manipulation, which is essentially, essentially, not essentially, although I guess there's some sensuality in it. Essentially, (laughs) but essentially, hey, we know this guy's an asshole. Like we know, you know, like what we know climate change is real. We know climate change is real. It's really bad. We're going to do everything to fight it. But then we're going to do the Willow Project. It's like this (laughs) dual, like, you know, which they do here. They're like, we know the Fox family is bad. Like that scene you were describing with the three men. The the film is self-aware enough that, like, this is the evil character. But maybe, maybe not. Like, it's such... It's psychologically, like, horrible to go through.
0: They're also making Joe Fox look better by putting him up against more evil characters, right? Like, Joe Fox is evil, right? But his dad and his grandpa are objectively worse. Like, they have had millions of wives and have very young children and talk about them in such misogynistic terms and... They, they are objectively worse than him. And he kind of looks at them and he thinks about it. And he's like, I don't really want to be like them. And, and moves out and lives in his boat and does a little internal thinking. And I think we're supposed to be like, wow, he's not as bad as daddy and granddaddy. He's, right. he's a bad guy, but he's trying. But another thing the movie does to make Joe Fox look eligible um is throw in so casually a plot point about meg ryan's maternal figure played by gene stapleton we i mean we don't have to get into all of it now but there's just a throwaway scene a throwaway line where gene stapleton who is who has known meg ryan for years was friends with her mother is her quirky you know surrogate mom type birdie she right great, birdie gives her great advice Birdie casually mentions that she fell in love, the love of her life ran Spain. And then we cut to a scene with Greg Kinnear and Meg Ryan going to the movies. And Greg Kinnear is like, she, she fell in love with Generalissimo Francisco Franco, the fascist dictator, and is, I think, rightfully aghast. And Kathleen Kelly is just like, yeah, I mean she was in another country, right? And I think when I first watched this again, I was like, why was that thrown in there? Like why would why would we make this sweet older woman have had a, a past with a genocidal maniac? I don't understand what what why this rom com is doing that. And I think it's to to hone in on the point that, like, well, love is love, you know? Like love is maybe love. he was this fascist dictator, but you're gonna love who you're gonna love. And at least Joe Fox. Is it Generalissimo Franco? He's just Joe Fox. He's a good guy.
1: It's also, yes to everything you're saying, it's also emblematic of the mentality of, I guess, the baby boomer generation, because I think I think Tom Hanks and Marianne are both baby boomers, but mm-hmm. um, one that has been far removed enough from the actual threat of fascism that their parents' generation had to deal with and endure and struggle through to overcome that by the nineties, it's just a throwaway joke. It's like, Oh yeah, I was mm-hmm. in love with uh General Lisabel Franco. That's it's kinda of funny. We don't actually we don't actually uh, have any sort of material understanding of the horrors of fascism in the twentieth century. So, because we, you know, we got everything that our parents built from the social democracy that you know they they created once they all got back from war. So, like, it's just like a funny punchline for us. Yes. I mean, I I guess it makes sense, but it's also extremely dangerous to lose sight of your history that much because now our generations are now seeing the rise of fascism again in this country and other countries and we're like oh no this is like a real threat that is ever present and our parents generation really fucking drop the ball on that one so it made sense for them
2: it makes sense and and it's such good it's so frustrating because it is such good writing right it's it's oh it's a great screenplay it's such a great screenplay doing all the (laughs) telling all the wrong messaging when you really get down Mm -hmm. to it. So it's just like, oh, man, great lines. Like, because in some ways I'm like, yes, exactly what you said, Robin, it sets up. But love is love. Who cares if the politician doesn't have the right politics? I love them. I'm their fan. I'm in love with them. I love Obama. I love Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez I love you know and it's like this blinding love like in some ways I was like this is the love is blind before love is blind and (laughs) and I don't know if they I don't know if they would pass the test certainly Joe Fox uh, was like if she's a dog I'm out and so you're like (laughs) not not the point which we'll get back to but I do think it sets up the because the following scene is like Greg Kinnear Frank Frank Navasky's character and then right after that scene she has with Birdie they're sort of setting up that this is where she admits that she did. I don't even know if it's admitting because she didn't really seem to even ever think about it. She's like, I didn't vote. I got a manicure. But he brings up the point of like, I could never be with someone who doesn't have my politics. And I think it's framed like that's supposed to be like oh, somehow like that idea is antithetical to romance. Like romance should be especially if we're following the logic of this story. Romance is like throw everything all your logic away. Throw all your Your values, your values, your critical thinking, your sense of danger, your your sense of like anything, (laughs) throw it away because love is love is love. And I don't know, my question to you both, could you, have you, how do you think about the idea of like um, being partnered maybe long term if that's what you are into, that kind of monogamy or just in dating someone with your own politics have you dated someone that like because I, I was i was like yeah i wonder i i put it i put it to the to the to the room
1: got it so you're at have have we or would we <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm getting a little personal is what's happening data, data fascist
2: <laughs> i'm gonna say no
1: <laughs> or maybe
2: someone who has like like well, have you dated a non- Uh, let's even say someone who doesn't align with your left maybe they're like mid-range liberal and don't fully align with your lefty politics
0: (laughs) i think when i was younger yes um uh or or i guess in a not very serious relationship i think um as i've gotten older i mean i am in a long-term monogamous relationship right now with an anti-capitalist. And I think as I got older before, you know, we met each other and I was dating, I would bring up politics really early on, like on the dating profile to be like, here's the thing. I talk about it a lot. If you don't like that, this is not going to work out. That's just me personally. But I think when I was younger, there was more of a need to please and go along with others and not be as assertive about my points of view. Um, that's just my particular journey. I think I probably, I haven't, I hadn't, but I probably would have casually dated somebody with different political views for a little bit until, um, it verged on being serious.
1: Yeah. Um, pretty much the same. I have, when I was younger, casually dated people with different views, not repugnant views, like nothing, you know, like nothing like truly hateful, just like more, you know, more, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm fiscally conservative, but uh socially liberal, like that type, you know. Mm-hmm. Like when I was younger, that was fine. I think for like in a yeah, in a long term relationship, I definitely would want to be with someone that I had more aligned values and perspectives on. Cause otherwise you're just kind of, I don't know, you're approaching life in a vastly different way. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it should like I, I don't think politics, unless you again have like truly vile, hateful politics, I don't think. Someone's conservatism, libertarianism, whatever, should discount them as like a person that you are able to interact with and, you know, For potentially sure, get but, to know.
2: But date, you're, I feel like you're being very careful about that. <laughs> interact with, but do you mean like. <laughs>
1: no, I don't. I mean, date, but I'm kind of like lumping. Like dating, being acquaintances with, like got being you, family members with, you know, like yeah, there's, sure. there's, and obviously these are all these are all different types of relationships. Also, I don't know personally. I am a glutton for debate, so mm. I really enjoy. Mm. Like if I if I meet someone that I disagree with, I'm like, ooh, we're Let's gonna get go. into it, and I oh, am gonna okay. enjoy that, you know.
0: Oh, I'm the total opposite. I I don't, I'm, I'm, so, I get so stressed. I hate debating. Like I will, I can like write out all my thoughts in like a dissertation and like a very like lovely, like argumentative something and send it out into the ether. But I hate, I do not like debating, um, people that i'm going to be intimate with right of course mm. like having friends or coworkers or family members or casually dating somebody i can i can get into a debate but if it's someone that i'm going to be building a partnership and an intimate life with i personally definitely would need them to align with me politically. But I do want to just say about Greg Kinnear's character, so in that very scene, when they break up, because he says I could never date someone who didn't care about politics or whatever the line is, then he breaks up with Meg Ryan, and she's like, is there someone else? Is it that, you know, that talk show host who interviewed you a couple scenes back? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Meg Ryan was like, is she a Republican? And Greg Kinnear goes, I just can't help myself. Yes. So his, I mean, so I think oh, he like would answer this. Oh, I did even clock this, that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he would answer this question even, like, you know, the the his character is definitely presented as, like, the annoying guy who cares about politics. The annoying liberal. The, like, what is what is The name from the observer. And, The not from the observer, the Upper West Side liberal, like pseudo intellectual, whatever. Like he's obsessed with his typewriter and he's such a Luddite. And he's like, you know, even he gives in to this idea of like love is love at the end. He can't help himself. He's going to date this Republican, you know, talking head.
2: And I think it's an interesting I I do think that question of like, can you date someone with your politics is interesting that that's it's crucial to the movie, because if the answer is. No, I would want to value wise align, then, then we don't have our ending. So, like you, it's like necessary to prove that point that, like again, love transcends. It it almost speaks to a further more dangerous topic, which idea, which is that like politics are not personal. I keep saying business is not personal, and I think behind that is politics are not personal, and this uh, this need to detach love and and dating and and personal life and anything that we really care about from. Politics. So there's never really any talk of like the real world material consequences of shutting down this store of anything that's going on. It kind of is more like this ideological. This is going to be hard, and and then. And then on the ideological factor at that same scene where we find out that Bertie is low key in love with a fascist. Not only that, she's filthy rich. So she's, she's fucking she's there loaded. like <laughs> She's loaded. And this is who that Kathleen Brownstone, Kelly has been.
1: Brownstone. My God.
0: And she says it. She says it too. Yeah. She's like, I
2: invested in Intel.
1: Yesterday, I bought Intel at six.
2: Yeah. At six. And she's been going to her like, what do I do? And this, birdie could birdie's been fucking with her she could care less she's like i don't know what what numbers like and so she says at that meeting which which i thought was interesting as well when she's like i think i'm gonna close the store and we're like oh that's sad but then she's like closing the store closing the store is the brave thing to do you're daring to imagine that you could have a different life you're marching into the unknown armed with nothing Like, again, another moment to just, like, gaslight us as an audience where we're like, oh, no, why would we, why, this is really bad. It's like, oh, no, 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 audience. It's actually good. It's brave. Give up on all your dreams. Just give in.
1: It's also, again, maybe unintentionally emblematic of, like, that thing that happens when a super rich person or like a retired person or you know someone who like just an older generation person who doesn't live in the current everyday struggles is just like go ahead and that's not that hard what what's the problem go ahead and do it and it's like you have no actual perspective on what this entails whatsoever why should i i should never ever listen to you you have no idea what you're talking about
0: and then at the end she she's like at the very very end one of the things she mentions is i'm a, i'm a writer i'm going to write a children's book who'd I have ever thought and i think we're almost meant to believe that like if joe fox hadn't destroyed her life and taken away this business she never would have realized her true dream which was to write a children's book which is absolutely ridiculous because she could have written a children's book, she was friends with many authors, many publishers. she could have done it while running her store. She didn't have to hit rock bottom and like be put lose the one thing that reminded her of her mother and you know lose her business and be gaslit and manipulated by this terrible man. She could have just written a children's book. We didn't need all of this to happen for her to get there.
2: <laughs> mm. yeah, I just I know we're not done ripping Joe Fox apart, but since we're on kathleen kelly there were just two things that i just need to say about our dear kathleen kelly one is because yes meg ryan is so charming but if you you really listen you're like she's pretty unbearable for me as like a character (laughs) first i just i agree the line that i just like cannot stop thinking about is when she's she just has this thing about like 22 year olds and she has her thing about kathleen kelly kathleen kelly And he doesn't say both last name, like her last name, which granted, it's a great last name. I'm Rivka Rivera. I like the double R. She has the double K. I get it. But her response is, you know, don't they know you're talking about 22 year olds? Don't they know you're supposed to have a last name? It's like an entire generation of cocktail waitresses. And that just makes me think she's the type of woman to be like, wear more clothes. Like, what's your problem? And like, which makes sense, because she then continues to, as Joe Fox's behavior is more and more ridiculous and as this man who she's supposed to meet who she's been talking to on the internet she doesn't even know yet it's joe fox doesn't show up she keeps making excuses for him just like you know he must he must have a really good reason like if this is 2023 anyone watching is like it's a scammer it's a catfish like people would know better like you're crazy has he asked you for a bunch of money yet but she's just making all these excuses and it was another moment where i just Another thing she said was, like, no matter what he's done to me, there's no excuse for my behavior. And that also felt like another sort of this this sort of like beginning of like this neoliberal narrative of like, you know, when they go low, we go high no matter what. And I was like, you know what? Sometimes when they go low, you got to go low because it's called standing up for yourself. So that's my rant on
0: KK. I agree. She's totally unbearable. I I completely agree. She's so, it's similar to Tom Hanks in that they're both so charming, but her dialogue is unbearable and she has a lot of internalized misogyny. I think she's very like, white liberal boomer lady of like mm. i will just let the man do whatever even though i am intelligent and i have read and i have opinions but i can't say them because there's no excuse for that right there's there's a a mm. generation of i think white liberal boomer ladies who have been raised and um, brainwashed into blaming them and you know still i think if you're a femme person in this world you're you're brainwashed into into existing that way but her in particular she says multiple times, there's no excuse for speaking to someone that way. And what bums me out so much is she writes in her emails often about wanting to be brave. And I really wanted her to find her voice. I really wanted her to be brave. And and she does a little bit when she asks um, Frank to, I mean, do something very unethical and, and write about her store and The Observer. And she gets a rally going and you see her going around her little bookstore, like punching and trying to like <laughs> Amber amp herself up and you're like you know maybe she's she's going to be brave she's going to find her voice and then we're led to believe at the end or at least this is how i interpreted it that her bravery in the end was being brave enough to fall in love with someone who may not seem like the right person to be with rather than fighting for her business fighting for herself fighting for her integrity. She also doesn't have any friends. Her friends seem to be the people who work at the bookstore, and they refer to the business as a family a number of times, which is a huge red flag, um, <laughs> even though it's, a, it's uh-huh. you know, they seem like they really love each other. I'm like, Meg Ryan, where are your friends? Is your only friend like this 20-year-old girl from Miss Congeniality who is in college writing papers. You know, the, the trope of the the best friend to the leading lady was noticeably absent in, mm. in this movie. And uh, that's such a great point because hopefully the best friend would have been like, what are you right, doing? Exactly. They amp her up. They love it. They're like, oh, he stood you up. He probably didn't have a phone. There's no voice of reason for her at all. And maybe it's because she's their boss, essentially, right? Like mm. they're sort of, they're like, you know, they're friends, but at the end of the day, it's her bookstore, and they're her employees.
1: It's so funny that you both say that, because I had a little bit more sympathy for Kathleen on this watch. Oh, I thought, okay. Yeah, I found her to be, like, I, I agree with a lot of the stuff that you're saying about, like, I didn't vote, I got a manicure. And, you know, like, the, the internalized misogyny, a lot of that, like, apologizing for you know, standing up for herself to Tom Hanks, who has been such a prick to her, this whole, like halfway through the movie, th- the whole thing is like, he's such a prick to her every time they see each other. And she's telling him online, like, this guy is such a prick to me. I wish I could just like be, I wish I could just get him back. And then she finally does. And she like, gets a zinger off on him and puts him in his place. And that's when she's like, oh, I really feel bad that I was mean to that guy who has been such a prick to me. Um, <laughs> so I agree with all that. Although the one difference I feel is that, I found her to be like incredibly sincere, C- Kathleen as a character, um, like dangerously sincere for this world, for this hyper capitalist market. Because, you know, when they say her employees are a family, I do believe that she believes that. Um, I mean, she's probably had doesn't have like profit sharing set up with them. But you know, <laughs> we can excuse that. But she really, she just wants to like be the bookstore in the neighborhood and do a a, a a righteous service and you know have community and all of these things. And she wasn't built for this competition. She wasn't built for this market. And that is, oh, I think, that's okay. Like it's okay for people not to be a fucking shark, not to be like mm-hmm. I'm a business. You know, I like I know how to do business because it's not natural. It is not natural mm-hmm. for us to be like, you know, what my you know what, like my modus operandi is, is to like suss out where my competition is and fucking kill them, like ruin these other people's lives. And like, that is so antithetical to her, to her being as a character. So that I, I had a lot of sympathy for her in, in, just in that, in that like, Joe Fox is like, I'm a piece of shit. I'm gonna put you out of business. And she's like, and she even says at the beginning, she's like, maybe there's gonna be room for both of us. Like she'll, there'll be room <laughs> for our store and the Fox books. And it's kind of all crystallized. I wanted to play this one clip from the end in that scene, Robin, that you mentioned, where Joe breaks into her apartment again, like a full blown psychopath. Because there's this refrain that keeps getting, that Joe keeps saying, and we've heard it before from capitalists. It's, it's one of their favorites that justifies the horrendous way they're able to treat uh, people, which is it's not personal. It's just business. And Joe says this to her multiple times. And he says it to her again after he has put her out of business. He says it. And then this is how Kathleen responds. It
0: wasn't personal.
2: What, what is that supposed to be? I'm so sick of that.
0: It, all that means is that it wasn't personal to you. But it was personal
2: to me. It's personal to a lot of people. I mean, what is so wrong with being personal anyway? God, I love, I love Meg Ryan.
1: Love Meg Ryan. And that's a really true human sentiment and one that I agree with. Like one business can destroy the livelihoods of another business and say it's, you it know, wasn't personal, but there are still destroyed livelihoods. There are people who lost their income. There are people who lost their health insurance. It has totally. a human impact.
2: I think that's a great point. And you know what, Frank? I was like getting ready to come at you in the middle, and I was like, oh, I like where this is. I kind of feel you where this is going. But then at the end, I was like, mm. <laughs> 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 except that she says that shit. And then she is like, uh, I don't care about politics. And she's just so disconnected, is my problem, that I'm like, it's, pers- it's all personal then, so whatever. But I hear you.
1: Yeah, and then she ends up falling for him at the end anyway. So it it, it kind of, you know, again, it like... It totally softens all she's yeah it's like all of the terrible things we've seen joe fox do all of the lying all the manipulating he's done to her all the gaslighting the full-on the pathological lying again fucking psychopath this is a this character is a psychopath who happens to be played by tom hanks that is the only redeemable thing about him (laughs) um and and at the end she's like i do love this guy what can i say
0: that's the thing. I think I really, I do like the character despite her flaws. I just wish she had been given a bitter ending by the writer. I don't dislike her for falling in love with him. I'm frustrated that that is the direction that the movie decided to take in the last eight minutes because it does happen so very fast. You're like, what? what? Mm. She just, she, she's, what? It's like whiplash. You're like, oh, okay. I guess we're getting coffee and we're going to a farmer's market and now we're in love and now you want it to be him. Like it's it's so fast that it does. It's like we don't even get any breathing room to come around to him, which I probably wouldn't have anyway. It's like she she doesn't get a chance to really wrestle with the fact that Joe Fox is her online lover. She gets like she gets like an eight minute end of movie montage, essentially, where they're eating apples and drinking coffee. And it's I just I wish she was given more I wish I wish she was
2: I wish she was done better by Nora Afron, really. Truly. I just wanted to throw in just talking about because I thought watching this in the context, it was like really special to get to watch this today in the context of AI and the fact that we're watching this film knowing that like the internet is just I mean, it's called You've Got Mail. Like it's so charming to revisit this time when you're like I think you said this, Robin, like it's it's sort of this very like tiny window where things could still be a little bit charming. Nobody really knows fully the dangers of catfishing or like, you know, where this thing is going to go. There's potential. In 98, actually, um, I, according to Pew Research Center, only forty per, 41% of adults went online. And when asked, 57% of non-internet users said they Worry not at all about missing out on something by not going online. So, like, it's a wildly different landscape. And it's just wild to be watching it now when, you know, I think one of the lines in the store is like, hey, are you online? Like, you online? You know, (laughs) which now it's just, it's the air we breathe. And you hear that echoed today where people are like, you on, are you on, are you on ChatGPT? Have you done this thing? And we're living in this wild time where I've probably said this before on the podcast. So, I don't know. I was thinking about Frank. Not our Frank here, but Frank from the movie being like, if Frank had a TikTok, Frank would be going
1: (laughs) (laughs) nuts right
2: now. And he would probably be in my algorithm just being like... Ah, like ringing the alarm about Chat GPT and about AI. And like this, if he thought that was scary, like poor Frank would be. So I just thought that was, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Like I just was like, this is so special and such almost like a necessary rewatch for people at this time.
0: I agree. And I think, I think on that, um joe fox is actually kinder in his emails like his internet persona is a lot nicer than his real life persona and i think today in 2023 the opposite is true for most people where people will be very cordial and nice in real life but then like fucking like demolish you in the comment section or start trolling people or say things like make tiktoks and say things that they would never say to a person's face, right? Or, or you know, they get up all in celebrities for stupid drama, right? Um, or they do really dark things, right? Like they join 4chan or like incel groups online, or they actually catfish people in a really negative way. But Joe Fox, who is a terrible person in real life, is being kind of sweet to her over email. He's giving her advice. He's talking about wanting to send her, you know, school supplies in bouquet form and I I think it's really like indicative of how yeah it was a very charming time we didn't know what it would be and people were perhaps I I mean I was very young I don't know I don't have any evidence to support this but perhaps people were sweeter also the movie really captures there's that one scene where um, Kathleen Kelly is about to write an email and then she gets an IM from from Joe Fox, and she wasn't expecting him to be on, and like that that moment of like your crush I in you, I had such a flashback. I was like, oh my gosh, yes, that was what it felt like when you just got an
2: I M from your crush that you weren't expecting. Bam Sport, if you're listening, Bam Sport. Oh. <laughs> wow,
1: what a time oh. like, like I still remember. Handle. All...
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Prop, prop, most likely will not listen, but if you listen,
1: <laughs> hit Rivka up.
2: <laughs> well. But, <laughs> I mean, I just, it, you're right, it's so visceral, that, like, and the sound and all of it.
1: Oh, yeah, when the the, the door opening, closing sound uh, from AIM, it was just like, who is it? Who just logged on? Oh, my God. Is it my crush? Whew. Yeah. I'm was... going to come
2: home and sit here in front of the screen <laughs> until someone... Just can... wait.
1: Oh, my God. And you would, like, uh, you would personalize the way that your font looked and you the way that you typed <laughs> and you like personalize all this stuff Mm -hmm. and it was like wow have you seen have you seen like nick's font oh my god it's like so edgy and cool no this was the honeymoon period of the internet when it was it was all just in front of us um like most technological advancements you know there's that first little bit of time where you're like the steam engine you know or the combustible engine this will be a really good thing that helps a lot of people and then it you know then it destroys the livable climate um same thing with the internet and destroying uh, so many different things but yeah it was a, a really it was a really lovely snapshot to a simpler a simpler time. All right Robin, well this is the point in the show where we like to give out awards for this movie. Our first award is called A Point with a View. This goes to the character with the best politics in the movie.
0: So I am I think the easiest answer is Greg Kinnear's character or Frank. Um however, he does you know, he does decide to date like who I guess we're believed to be is like a like a Fox News type like talk show host At the end. So just to be chaotic, I'm just gonna say Brinkley the dog. Oh. Because Brinkley oh. has no understanding of capitalism and um, loves everybody. Yeah, I think everybody in this movie is, is kind of a terrible um person.
1: They all are kind of shitty in one way or the Um I think that's good. I think a dog always has perfect politics. I am going to give this to Frank uh, only because because there, yeah, there, there's stuff about Frank that sucks. Like the giving up his values is like in a second when he's like, I'll date this woman. He's kind of has his head up his own ass. He's like very, yeah. he's very highfalutin. Um, mm-hmm. But I was surprised to see because like he's like a leftist. I am to presume like it, he, I, which was I was surprised to see in a 90s movie. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he's like extremely anti-corporate. He confronts Joe Fox at the party and says, how do you sleep at night?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, he's
1: an expert on Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, the Soviet <laughs> spies that were executed in the U.S. So I was like, oh, damn, like Frank is a socialist. He's like a leftist. So uh, for that, I will give it to Frank.
2: Yeah, my vote's going for Frank as well. Although it was interesting in this rewatch, it just stood out to me that the first like the first line of the movie is Frank's. And he's like, the entire workforce of the state of Virginia had to have solitaire removed from their computers because they hadn't done any work in six weeks. And I was like, oh, it's very like uh, you're concerned about the level of work getting done. Like it was just seemed so and so maybe that's also just the writers not fully understanding like a leftist perspective, you know, and not really being able to write that care, you know, so I'll give that. But yes, for all the reasons you said, and just that he at least is the like, stands up for the shop around the corner. So yes, for it's it's to Frank and to Brinkley. Uh, so our second award is Despicable You. Now this goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. We've named a few already, but Robin, who who are you giving this award to? Oh boy, it's got to be either Tom Hanks's
0: dad, Tom Hanks, but also Birdie, like. Oof fuck the jimson monster so do you know like you know it's gotta be like a three-way tie for me i don't know i mean joe fox is the easy choice but i think he's just like his dad and his grandpa so you can't give it to him without giving it to them
1: yeah i was gonna say the entire fox family except save the kids um all the fox men although let's get real
0: that little girl singing tomorrow
2: (laughs) (laughs) we know where they're headed okay she can be in there too
1: (laughs) (laughs) most likely they're not turning out great we know how this goes but yeah all of the the, but that's a good point like is it or is it the Fox men? Is it the corporate parasite misogynists? Or is it Birdie, the fascist sympathizer? I don't know. I don't know what is. I, I genuinely don't know what's worth. What's worth. <laughs> I in will that, make uh, it easy matchup. for
2: everybody and give it to 50 red flags. <laughs> Joe Fox. Break the tie. I'm just going to give it to my to my guy.
1: And our final award is a star is scorned. This goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about.
2: I have a very
0: specific and niche answer for this. In the scene at Zabar's, where Tom Hanks is so charming to Rose, there is a man behind Meg Ryan who really wants her to hurry the F up and get out so he can cook his Thanksgiving meal. And he continually inserts himself into that scene. And I had to rewind it and and watch it again, because I laughed so hard at his line deliveries. His name is Henry. He introduces himself (laughs) because uh, Tom Hanks is like, I'm Joe Rose. It's a beautiful name, Rose. And he's like, and I'm Henry. So I want to see Henry's adventures on Thanksgiving. Where is he off to? Why is he in such a rush? Why is he in such a bad mood? What is he buying? And what does he think of this very annoying man and very annoying woman in front of him holding up the line? That's a great one. That's a really good
1: one.
2: I'm giving it to Patricia Eden, Parker Posey's character. She's. She's like pitch perfect in this. I just love this character. And this was like, this worked for me, the dichotomy of she's obsessed with Frank and his writing. She's like one of her lines at the parties when she's like, oh, she loves everything he's written just because it's smart, but she doesn't actually know. She's like, and I have no idea what it means. And her line at the party where she talks about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, and she's like, I just think it's so interesting how old they look at that like that's her fact. she's like oh. and that they looked so- <laughs> she's like but they're really our age they but they're so really old. our age and parker posey's just so brilliant at, like she does She's there's always a piece of her but this character it's like you're like it's still distinctly parker posey but it's she She's just like a very distinct character and one that i loved and she figured out how to fit her her sort of like essence into this rom-com nora Ephron world so shout out to Patricia what about you Frank
1: Parker Posey one of the best to ever do it um I am giving this to uh Christina which is one of uh Meg Ryan's one of Kathleen's employees oh yeah it's all based on one line because at one point when they're talking about how the bookstore could close she says and then I'm gonna have to move to Brooklyn and that is racially coded i think i think that is very much Mm -hmm. the white woman being like i don't want to have to go move to brooklyn where the non-white people live um so i want to see her fucking have to move to brooklyn and get her (laughs) total get her world rocked and just like like completely lose her white privilege that's that's the movie that i want to see
2: that's a good one and nobody wants to see dave Chappelle's movie or maybe they do but we've already seen it Mm moving on. I don't even know. I just felt like I had to say it. And I'm like, why are you don't even? Okay, well, I think there's clearly mentioned. it needed to be mentioned. There's clearly so much that we could, I think, just keep going. But alas, we we champed for today, because we are going to get into <laughs> another interesting topic, which is what we always like to ask our guests at the end is to just, you know, talk a little bit about as you have mentioned, you're an anti capitalist and how And actually, we started kind of talking about this at the top, but how your values as an anti-capitalist are – you try to live them out in your day-to-day, even as complex as that might be. Uh, Is there one thing that you want to share with us or maybe a few things you want to share with us?
0: Yeah, I think just going back to our conversation at the top, I also – Frank, thank you for making clear that there are a million ways to be an artist and, you know, you don't have to be in the slog to, you know, to be – to be an artist you don't have to do it professionally but i also anyone who's listening who is a professional artist i don't want you know me saying this is not for me anymore to sound like i'm like oh i my values are you know i'm i can't do that anymore you know we live in an imperfect capitalist system and you we make choices and if if you know i just i just wanted to clarify that um you know that if you're you're choosing to be a commercial actor you are certainly not the person behind those corporations making those commercials. You got to live your life survive and and make your art. I think just a really simple thing I do is I truly wear like my clothes until they break. Like I have been I have I try to practice sustainability and uh, and not be consumerist. And I have I have literally had boots fall apart on me while walking in them. A very small thing you can do. Um, also, my partner and I made our own soap this past weekend and so Ooh. much came of it. It was a really fun little activity, little artistic activity um with you know fresh lavender and stuff like that i want to plug i don't actually know this person but i i love this substack called the unpublishable by jessica defino jessica is um a journalist who has written for a lot of um fashion magazines and now has her own substack which is an anti beauty culture anti capitalist substack and she examines the ways that beauty culture um is essentially like a scaffolding for capitalism, colonialism, racism, patriarchy, in ways you you may not consider, especially as a former actor, where you know what you are your brand, you are your product, um, and as a person who is raised as a woman in this country, like we are really, it's really beaten into us that in order to be a value, we must present it a certain way, and I think. Anyone interested in dissecting that should go ahead and subscribe to Jessica DeFino's Substack. Uh, I find it really interesting, especially because she has that insider perspective having worked for these magazines and having worked for the
2: Kardashians themselves. Um, Ooh. Wow. That's awesome. Robin, thank you for sharing all of that. And I'm looking forward to checking out those resources.
1: Robin, where can our audience find you and your work?
0: I am on Instagram at um, underscore, underscore Robin Johnson. It's R-O-B-I-N. And that's probably the best place to find me right now. As um, we've discussed, I'm going through a little bit of an artistic reawakening.
2: So any website is under construction. Uh, That's the best place to find me. Awesome. This was such a pleasure. Thank you for picking this movie. Thank you for coming on and having this conversation with us.
0: Thank you for having me. Thanks for the perspectives and making me laugh and uh, watching this terrifying movie.
1: Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all of that info at mvcpod.com.
2: For next week's movie, we'll be watching the 2020 Best Picture winner, Parasite.
1: Thanks, everyone.
2: Bye.